0: Before we get into the message for this morning, I direct your attention to the gospel reading just to make a comment, and this is John 3 on page 8 in your bulletin, verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, and I draw your attention to that verse, to point out the prepositional phrase, of water and the Spirit. Notice, water and Spirit are both objects of the preposition of. They are joined together in this prepositional phrase, grammatically joined together. And I point that out because many people um, would separate the work of the Spirit from the physical element of the water, like those two things couldn't possibly mix. But they do. Jesus joins water and spirit together in this passage. And water and spirit are joined together in other passages as well. So we do not separate what God joins together. Baptism is God's work. It is not yours or mine. It is what God does in us, for us, and to us. It's in the Scripture. And the plain meaning of the text is that. So again, we don't separate water and spirit as some do. We join them together because God does. Jesus does in the passage. We bow our heads and pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, when you read the Gospel of John, it's not long before you realize that you, the reader, are in the middle of a battle, a battle between light and and darkness these words are used throughout the gospel of john it's a battle between christ and satan now make no mistake light and darkness are not equal powers light is superior john chapter 1 verse 5 the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and yet it's still a battle And battles involve casualties. Drug overdoses, broken families, sexual immorality, child abuse, elective abortion. All of us bear the scars of this battle. We all do. And this battle lives in each one of us. Yes, the light of Christ dwells in every believer, but the darkness dwells in each one of us as well. Roman number one in your sermon outline, the light shines in the darkness. Letter A, darkness is the result of one man's sin. St. Paul writes in Romans 5, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And Paul writes, "...by the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners." And we talked about this last week. It's the concept of representative government. God's kingdom works that way. You're represented either by Adam or by Christ. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. God deals with us through those two representatives... And as I said last week, you could have no better representative in the Garden of Eden, aside from Christ, no better representative than Adam. He was made without sin. He was holy and righteous before God. No better representative could you have, and yet he failed. And were the casualties. Letter B. In John's Gospel, darkness or night is synonymous with ignorance and opposition to God point number one only when the light arrives is the darkness exposed as darkness does a fish know that it's wet how can it know what wetness is like unless it experiences dryness Similarly, we cannot comprehend the extent and the depth of our own darkness in ourselves until it is illuminated by the light. For example, adultery is not just the physical act. It is the thought that leads to the act. Murder is not just the physical act. It includes the anger that leads to the act. And number two... Evil is aware of its own shame. It is. Therefore, it loves darkness. It does not want to be exposed. This is why our first parents covered themselves. This is why they ran or they ran and hid from the Lord. John chapter 3, verse 19, just beyond our gospel reading, Jesus says this, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, that's, that's our sinful nature. We run from the light. Let her see. Even the most spiritually privileged people on earth, that would be the Israelites, are lost and in darkness. Even they are lost and in darkness, according to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 6, that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the lost sheep are not just a subset of Israel, they're all, it's all Israel. God's people were lost people, as much as anyone else on the planet. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, in darkness, and I, I think that is symbolic of his spiritual condition, because he's completely clueless concerning the basic spiritual matters of which Jesus speaks. Jesus asks incredulously, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Letter D, even the most privileged people need not reform, but rebirth. Rebirth or recreation, one could say. Now, God does not want to reform your sinful nature. He seeks to destroy it. He drowned it in the waters of baptism, but like a dead body, it keeps popping up to the surface. Through daily repentance, we shove that sinful nature back down under the water where it belongs, and that allows our new nature in Christ to spring up and to do the good works which God prepared in advance for it to do. Roman numeral two and the darkness is passing away. And it is. John writes in first John two verse eight, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. That means wherever the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, the darkness is in retreat. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the strong man is bound. The devil is bound. He's disarmed. And people, through the preaching of the gospel and through the administration of the sacraments, people are delivered out of bondage to the kingdom of darkness and they're brought into the light of God's forgiveness. That's how it works. And the devil can't stop it. He tries. He battles. But he can't stop the light. Letter A. God hated both sin and its result, which is darkness. But God loved the world, and and so he resolved to deal with sin through the revelation of his love. And the Greek word for that is agape, and you've heard it before, agape. God resolved to deal with us, not in a condemning way, but in a loving way, a forgiving way, an agape way. And letter B, God's agape love is more than a feeling, we read in verse 16a, "For God so loved the world." And if we stopped there and read no more from that, we might assume, "Oh, that God has sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling for all of us," and that's nice. There's nothing wrong with feelings, but unless the feelings lead to action, feelings are of little good. Agape is love that acts on behalf of others. Number one, it is a firm resolve, a firm resolve or a commitment that expressed itself in action at the cross. And the action is expressed in verse 16b, that he gave his only son. That's the action. And this recalls Abraham doing the unthinkable, placing his only son on the altar of sacrifice. But what God would not allow Abraham to do, God himself did, handing over his only son to the judgment and the condemnation that was our due. Number two, this agape is not passive. It is purposeful. It's purposeful. The purpose of God's handing over his son is expressed in verse 16c. Quote, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, end quote. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the purpose. His love is more than a feeling. It is a firm resolve, and it is purposeful. And point number three, this agape does not depend on how likable Or how lovable the object of love is it acts in the interest of the object meaning the world in our interest now some of you know there's another Greek word for love it's called eros and eros is love that seeks to acquire someone or something for itself for its own satisfaction for its own sake now agape is the opposite of that eros seeks its own good Agape seeks the good of the other. And point number four. All the world's sins could not deter this agape. All the world's sins could not prevent that love from reaching us. And here's why. Agape love is pardoning love. It is forgiving love. When agape... Reaches sin, when it encounters sin, it detaches the sin from the sinner and it attaches those sins to the sinless Son of God so that justice and mercy meet at the cross. Could you imagine taking one of your own children? and nailing him or her to a cross, even if it was to save another life. Could you imagine taking your only child to do that? My friends, what you and I could not imagine, God actually did. God's love acts in our interest, regardless of the cost to himself. And let her see. Through the Son of God... The love of God reached the world of men. It was released into the world by his death. Now someday, you will stand before God and you will see his face and you will behold his glory. And on that day, you will learn more and know more about God's majesty and his power and his glory than you could possibly know today. But you will not know more Concerning his love, than you can know today. Because the cross of Christ is the fullest, it is the most complete revelation of God's love that you will ever know, either now or in eternity. My friends, the cross reveals the heart of God for the world, and it provides the clearest picture of who God is and God's love. Point D. Signals a new relationship of God to man and of man to man. A relationship based on the forgiveness of sins. Let me illustrate. This is a 12 ounce glass. That can hold 12 ounces of liquid. But if I pour more than 12 ounces of liquid into the glass, what happens? It overflows. It can't contain more than the 12 ounces, can it? Now, you and I are like that glass because Jesus said this in Luke chapter 7, whoever is forgiven much will love much, but whoever is forgiven little will love little. What he means is this. Each of us is like a glass that overflows. Each of us has been forgiven so much that it cannot be contained within us. When we realize, when we when we understand and remember how much forgiveness we have received, there is a natural overflow of that forgiveness from our lives into the lives of others. It cannot be contained. So at the cross, God establishes a new relationship with humanity characterized by an overflowing abundance of forgiveness which naturally flows out of us to those around us now I close with this question what is the most well known verse in all the Bible any guesses John three sixteen. Paul you're right okay it's the most well-known verse in practically every country on earth. We know what it says more or less, but let me, let me remind you of what it does not say. John 3:16 does not say, "For God so loved Israel, that He gave his one and only son." Agape love cannot be limited to Israel." John 3:16 does not say, "For God so loved the poor." that he gave his only Son. God's love could not be limited to the poor. John three sixteen does not say, God so loved the humble or the obedient or the pure in heart or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that he gave his only Son. God's love could not be limited even to people as noble as that. The text clearly says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In John's gospel, the term world includes, it includes the multitude of unbelieving humanity alienated from God and hostile to Christ. You see, my friends, there is a depth and a breadth to God's love that ought to comfort every sinner. So that even if you've never been baptized, even if you've never believed in the Lord, even if you've never been through confirmation instruction in order to receive the Lord's Supper, God loves you as much as those who have because you belong to God's world. You belong to those whom God gave himself for. And my friends, no human being can ever be more important or more significant than that. In Jesus' name, Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.